Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, right here. And if you can't catch us as we air live, there's a podcast every day on demand for free, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow down today, 349 points at the close ending at 32,898. Well, let me give out the phone number, 833-456-1300. We don't take calls a ton on the show, but I thought this was interesting, and I want to get your take on it. 833-456-1300, toll-free, your connection here at the Guy Benson Show. There was an Associated Press story this week about how the president and the first lady resolve their disagreements, their differences, their fights, basically, via text message. Which, at least to me, is a bad idea. But if it works for them, it works for them. I'm not saying that it's wrong and they shouldn't do it that way. I think for me, especially if tensions might be running high, whether it's with a significant other or just anyone, trying to resolve something that's a, a real meaningful dispute that you know impacts people's sort of mental well-being, their emotions. I don't know if text messages are the place for that. Just like I feel like you know Twitter is not really always the best place to resolve complex differences. There's only so much you can do in that format. But if Biden and the first lady, the president and the first lady, if that's what works for them, then, you know, God bless. I'm not judging them. The question that I have for you is, when you have a disagreement, not like, you know, where do you want to go for dinner type thing, something more significant or substantial, a fight, a disagreement, what have you, with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, long-term, serious relationship, or someone that you're seeing, how do you handle it? 833-456-1300. This is just more a curiosity on my point, not trying to make any political point about the Bidens. Maybe there are a lot of couples who just text it out. I think that there's kind of like a whole continuum, a spectrum between giant blow-up screaming fights and seething, quiet resentful bottling up of things, right? There's kind of everything in between. And I'm not necessarily asking for advice. I'm just curious how people do it and how that works for you and why it works or doesn't work. 
That's the phone number here, and I know that Christine is screening calls and is very busy, but she has been dying to weigh in on this, so I want to make sure that we let her quickly do that. Christine, when you and Bobby have a disagreement, how is it handled in your household? I mean, the outcome we both know, and I'm not trying to be mean here, so if Bobby's listening, he understands this. The outcome is I'm right, he is wrong. So unless that unless we get to that ending, it's not going to be pretty. We don't really talk on the phone or text or anything like that. Like we need to have it out face to face, but on my terms when I'm ready, not when he's ready. And I have to go now. Is that fair? Um, happy wife, happy life. But is there like a a version of that involving the husband? Like what if he's unhappy? No, no, no. If I'm happy, Bobby's happy. That seems a little tautological. Do you? Is there like shouting, or do you just um, refuse no. to talk to him? No, there's no shouting. But yeah, I'll refuse to talk to him. Like if if I'm not ready to talk about it, I'm not talking about it. It I, I'm I'm sorry, it just has to be that way. I know that Dan is laughing at me. Does this sound harsh? I'm trying to like be honest, but it's the truth. But if you're not ready to talk about something, are you playing games about when you're ready to talk about something? No, so you're no, gonna make no. Him wait? No, there's no games. Like, really? You know, no, because I'm 40. I've been married for almost 11 years. There's no games. It's literally when I'm, when my hot head is done and we're ready. When I'm cooled off, him and I can sit down, have a glass of wine together, and figure it out. And honestly, we're always fine. It's always going to be okay. Will you? lock it down and freeze him out while you're in the stewing period. Yes. Oh, I'm so good at that. At like silent treatment stuff? I, I can freeze it. Yeah. I'm pr- I know it sounds bad, but I, maybe it's the Italian jersey. I mean, I could freeze out anybody. Anybody. Because, you know, silent treatment, it's just surprising because I don't really associate you with silence very often. But I guess in this one context, it's it's weaponized. Yeah. Well, well no, no, I don't. No, don't don't turn my words around. I got a call screen. Okay, 833-456-1300. We know the calls are coming in, but Christine made me promise she wanted to weigh in on this because we'd been talking offline about the Bidens and their text method where they text through their problems. So now we know how Christine operates. And even if her husband Bobby's listening, because he does listen pretty frequently, we're not telling him anything here that's breaking news. He's very much aware of how it goes in his household. How does it go in your household? 833-456-1300. Let's go to Star calling from Georgia. Star, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. You bet. So for me, I would have to say just going right into it, you know, when we have a debate, my partner and I, it's her way or the highway. And it's kind of like similar to what Christine is saying or was saying. It's cutthroat. Like you put someone on ice when someone has feelings. Now, do I think via text is the way to do it? Ah, to each its own. I couldn't say that it works or it doesn't work. But for me, it does not. It's in person, eye to eye communication. And I like to handle my issues right then and there. Unfortunately, my companion does not. So it <laughs> you wait. You know what I mean? And that uh, doesn't work for me because my opinion and my feelings are also valid. Not saying that yours isn't, 
But how does something like that work? How do you? She said she was married for 14 years, and David is cool with that. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> so, last question quickly here. You said it's my way or the highway on the part of your partner. How do you then get past that? Does it only get resolved when you basically finally come around to agreeing? Or do you sometimes get through? I can honestly say I feel I never get through. She reminds oh me a lot of Christine. And it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I'm, and it, I'm so happy that I tuned in when I did because, you know, we're actually having a discussion right now that oh, we cannot oh. see eye to eye on. Okay, and so you sort of you hash it out on national radio is how it works is what I'm hearing. <laughs> and look, if if it works out for you guys and ultimately you're in a happier place, then great. If not, then I, you know, I am in no position to give you advice, but I'm glad that you're out there. I'm glad that you're listening. I hope that you actually win one of these just once. Thanks for the phone call. Thanks for listening. Star in Georgia, 833-456-1300. When there's a fight with your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whoever you're with, how does that go? How is it resolved? The Bidens reportedly do it by text message. Some people scream at each other so loudly, all the neighbors know every detail of the dispute. Are you on one end or the other, somewhere in between? Do you have a weird system? Do you have a system that works? 833-456-1300. Christina calling from Texas. Christina, welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Hi. So with me and my significant other, um, texting does not work for us. But like the previous caller said, to each their own. If it works for them, that's fine. But whenever we have a disagreement, we go in separate rooms or one of us will just go for a drive or go somewhere away from each other. And we cool down and then we come back, revisit the topic. Um, Sometimes we do agree to disagree and we just let it go. And another rule of thumb is we do not go to bed mad. So we resolve the issue on the same day. So I – the last thing that you said I can really relate to, I – am not the type of person who can just hang around for even days on end if I know that my person is upset with me. Like, I want to deal with it as soon as humanly possible, and I don't like the idea of falling asleep that night still angry or bothered about something. Now, look, in life you're going to go to bed angry or bothered about things, but not with the person who's next to you. And I know it's not always easy, but to me that that's a big one. And, Christina, it sounds like you and I, at least on that point, are very much on the same page. And it sounds like what you just described is, like, pretty respectful and pretty mature. That's just just my opinion. Christina, thank you for listening down there. 833-456-1300. How we deal with spousal or significant other disputes. The Associated Press says that the first couple, Joe Biden and Jill Biden, excuse me, Dr. Jill Biden, they texted out text messages. I I, I have my doubts about whether that's effective for many people, but if it is for them, again, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, hating on that. I'm just curious what you do in your house when this type of situation arise, uh, arises. 833-456-1300. Let's go to St. Louis. Jim is on the line. Jim, welcome to the show. Glad you called. Oh, thank you very much. My wife and I have been married for over 40 years. Wow, congratulations. Have, thank you. And we hope for 40 more. And we have never had a fight. Uh, We've never had an argument. 
uh, when we, we get into uh, when we disagree about something insignificant uh, because we don't fight, we don't argue. When we but when we do disagree about something, I give in when life goes on. Every time. Every time. Forty years of that, you've never had a fight. Never. No, she's my best friend. I don't fight with my best friend. Huh. Because the thing is, I also, I don't have fights. Adam and I don't fight. We disagree sometimes. He'll sometimes let me know that he's unhappy with something by going over the top, like, jokingly passive-aggressive. Like, okay, I guess I'll just take the trash out again by myself. I'm like, okay, message received. We haven't really had any sort of big fight ever because I'm just not that way. But we're also on year two. You're on year 40, which is extremely impressive. So congratulations on all of that, Jim. And I, I, I don't know if, if I could adopt the strategy of always just agree with the other person. But if it's working for you guys, God bless. 40 years. That's awesome. 833-456-1300. How, when there's a fight or a disagreement or something going down in your life with your partner, how does it get resolved? Screaming match, text messages, do you call up a a radio show and complain in front of the country? What do you do? 833-456-1300. More of your calls coming up after this commercial break. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. Our phone number here at the show, 833-456-1300. Calls flowing in. The topic is the Bidens reportedly... Settle their disagreements, Mr. and Mrs., President and First Lady, via text message, which I find very interesting. I think that would be difficult from my end. So then the question becomes, and the question I've posed, is how do you all deal with disagreements or disputes or fights in your relationships with significant others? Where on the spectrum do you land? 833-456-1300. Let's get back to the phones. Jill is in Atlanta, listening on 106.3 Extra. Jill, welcome. Hi, I had a roommate who had a winner card with her boyfriend. And after a conversation was hashed out, they would pull the winner card out of their wallet and hand it to the person who won that conversation. And that conversation could not be opened again because it was considered complete. Wow. Now, I, I don't even know what to say to that because it's a, what if it's a tie? Because if you have two people, each person feels like they've won it, how do they determine who gets the winner card? Or are they just so mature that they could look at it objectively and this system actually worked? Are those people still together? They are still together. I would not say the system worked. as the roommate you're like yeah i don't think so because he might have the winner card but she's whining to you you know over her seventh glass of chardonnay it's really not over right the card might say it's over but it's not over that's fascinating an actual winner card i've never heard of that that's entertaining though jill good call i wonder if that was jill's roommate if that was jill 
ah, that sounds like a roommate story. I think she's telling the truth. 833-456-1300. It's like, oh, yeah, my friend does this thing. No, no, I think it's probably the roommate. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Grant, Los Angeles, California. Grant, glad you called. Hi, guy. So there is a lyric from Taylor Swift's song, Stay, 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 circa 2012, where she, she quotes, because I read you should never leave a fight unresolved. And I, I took that to heart 10 years ago when it came out. And you should always, always, always get to the root of the issue before the issue becomes a bigger problem. Because when that bigger problem does arise, you then bring in all of the past examples of how the relationship isn't working. So if you just get to the root cause of it before it becomes escalated, violent, whatever it might be, you just have to talk about that issue when it comes to fruition. Yeah, no, I think that that's very smart and probably true because this is another thing that you'll see sometimes in these relationship fights is people won't deal with stuff for long periods of time and one person is really angry or resentful about it. Then finally it comes up and there's like this whole laundry list of complaints and grievances dating back months or even years. Like then this happened, then that happened. And I think if that's where you are now, where you're, calling back to a bunch of stuff that you're mad about, that is not a healthy place to end up. So I I tend to agree. I think that's a good call, Grant, to try to nip it in the bud and deal with things early. Thanks for the call. That's a good piece of the equation. The second part of it, though, that we're talking about here is how do you do that? And, And in what venue, through what process, do you tackle the issues, preferably early, to your point? 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. John, New York, you're next. Hi, John. Hi, hello. Uh, I was just going to put in that conversations of disagreements need to be together in person, eye to eye, where both sides can be heard and understood and there can be compromise. Or, yes. Um, And you can see the other person because I think sometimes with this whole text message thing with the Bidens, sometimes words can be misinterpreted and people will sit there and look at the words on the screen and stew on them and not understand what the meaning was. And and in person, you can hear the inflection in the voice. You can see someone's eyes. I, I think that's probably a best practice. Good call, John. Very quickly, Chris in Ohio. We'll give you the last word on this, Chris, because we're almost out of time. 20 seconds. Hey, guys. Yeah, it doesn't work for uh, me and my wife to text. Um, we have to wait till we get home. Like you were just saying, the inflection of the impression on the face or even the touch of a hand. Yep. You can't tell how someone's texting back and forth. In person. In person all the way. That's my take as well. Good call. Thanks for all the calls, folks. Mike Pompeo is next. We will change topics with him. <laughs> Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our happy hour on this Monday here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and then around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. See you over there. Here on the radio side, though, our website, always GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink which is absolutely fantastic. It's so good. I had one or two, perhaps, over the weekend. I'll cop to that. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They're expanding like crazy, 40 states now. And if you've tried it, you know why. It is delicious. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Joining us now is my friend, Brad Thor, who's a New York Times best-selling author. He writes thrillers. He generally puts one out every year right around this time. I'm a fan. I devour these books. And his latest in the Scott Harvath series is called Rising Tiger. I just finished it on Saturday. I blew through this book. Rising Tiger is available everywhere on July 5th. So I feel very privileged to get a sneak peek and also to talk with Brad about his forthcoming guaranteed bestseller they're all surefire bestsellers the only question is does it become like number one number two or number three that's how popular brad's work is brad another hit in the making here in rising tiger congratulations and welcome back to the show uh it's great to be with you and thanks for the kind words guy i'm really glad you enjoyed uh rising tiger well i did because look a lot of your books through the years take place and i talk about this whenever we discuss your latest work you have this really cool way of taking different disparate plot lines, often in different places around the world, and then bringing them all together at the end, and it all just kind of works. And you bring the reader on this amazing tour of the globe over the course of all of your novels. And this one was really a focus on the threat of China and the Chinese Communist Party. And most of the book, the lion's share of the book, took place in India which I think was an interesting choice and a choice that really makes a lot of sense from a geopolitical standpoint, and yet it kind of feels underplayed in our conversations about sort of the the way of the world and the state of geopolitics. Let's talk about that choice first. Obviously, the CCP and that threat uh, is not a shock to anyone, but why do you decide to set most of Rising Tiger in India? Well, it's a great question, and as you and I talk about every year, uh, my books are like the James Bond movies. You don't need to have ever seen a Bond movie to go to the theater and see the latest one. You're not going to feel like you missed a thing. So if you haven't read a Brad Thor book before, you can start with Rising Tiger. Uh, The seed for Rising Tiger came from two years ago last week in the high Himalayas. Chinese PLA troops 
snuck across the border uh, into India, and they were armed not with firearms, but with all these homemade weapons. This really happened. Iron rods studded with spikes, uh, wooden clubs wrapped with barbed wire, and they attacked a contingent of Indian troops. And it was the worst attack uh, between – or the worst skirmish between India and China uh, since 1975. And these are two nuclear neighbors. And I looked at this and I said, wow, why is nobody paying attention to all of the pressure China is putting on India? Wait, so just hold, hold up Kingdom? there, Brad, just for one yeah. second. I just – sometimes especially – when I'm talking with you about your books, I just want to be crystal clear. What you just described was not a scene from Rising Tiger, although it sort of becomes one. But what you just described really happened in real life. Recently. Absolutely. It happened. It happened to it happened June 15th, 2020. Uh, there was dead on both sides. In fact, there were some Indian soldiers that were unidentifiable. They had to use DNA testing to figure out who was who on the battlefield after the Chinese withdrew. And as a thriller author, I looked at this and said, this is an amazing story. And as I dug deeper, the big takeaway I came uh, out of it with is we really need to be pushing for a more formalized alliance with India and wrapping in the other members of the Quad, Australia and Japan, to create a formal relationship in Asia similar to an Asian version of NATO. Right. And so the idea for the book was – Like a democracy alliance. Exactly, but particularly focused on curbing the military and economic ambitions of China, which is buying its way around the world into all these countries and having undue influence. So I thought it was a good kind of background for a really fun spy thriller, and I'd never done anything in India, and I'd never seen any of my contemporaries do anything in India. And I, it turned out to be a really cool place to set a thriller. Brad, what is the Belt and Road Initiative? I know some people may have heard that in some context at some point, but it's a really important phenomenon, the Belt and Road Initiative, and then something else that I hadn't heard of until I read Rising Tiger, the String of Pearls. It's related. Define those terms for us, if you would. Correct, the String of Pearls. So first of all, the Belt and Road Initiative is an attempt by China to connect itself with the rest of the world by investing in development projects around the globe so that they can tie themselves to other nations. I've, uh, I've likened it to being a polar bear getting its nose inside the tent, and there's no good part of a polar bear to ever have in your tent. And when the Chinese put money into your co- country, they start trying to exert influence over your foreign policy, what you're doing domestically. They're doing this in Pakistan, for instance, billions and billions of dollars going in there, which is going to help turn Pakistan even harder against India. And so they do this around the world in different countries. And then the String of Pearls is basically a naval equivalent of the Belt and Road Initiative, where China is setting up commercial uh, permits for them to use shipping ports, and sometimes they even put their military in these ports. And covertly, they're setting up spy hubs and listening posts and things like that. So India, essentially, if you look at specifically China's efforts in that area, they have put a noose around India's neck, and India is a, India could be a great substitute for China for our supply chain and many, many other reasons uh, that we should formalize a more official alliance with them. And so, again, all of these real-life facts go into the faction, as I call it, of my novels. Mm-hmm. We don't know where the facts end, and the fiction begins. Yeah, and to your earlier point, here you have, with China and India, with the bloody skirmish that played out that you described back in 2020 – These are two huge nations with more than a billion people living in each of them that are both nuclear armed and they're neighbors. So if you see any sort of rising tension there, 
I think it's something that everyone should pay at least some attention to. It seems somewhat significant. And what you delve into in Rising Tiger, the premise basically is, okay, so you have the Chinese working to undermine India. They don't like having a democracy right on their border. They view them with suspicion. They're teaming up with others like the Pakistanis to hurt New Delhi and the government there and the people of India. What would happen, hypothetically, if the United States were secretly, covertly plotting and planning to create another version of NATO? And instead of Europe, this would be sort of in the Pacific theater or in the East, generally speaking, with those other allies that you just mentioned. And then the Chinese government got wind of it, and they were desperate to stop this type of alliance from ever formalizing. What would the Chinese spy system, basically, and military attempt to do to disrupt that? That's the jumping off point of Rising Tiger. What can you give my audience in terms of a sneak preview of the plot to whet everyone's appetite without any major spoilers? <laughs> well, I've got a very interesting uh, – so chapter one is that whole attack in the high Himalayas that's ambushed by the Chinese on the Indians. And then chapter two is actually a shadow diplomat set, sent by the White House to try to get India into this official organization to really get this ramped up. But the Chinese know he's coming, and outside a restaurant in Jaipur, this guy's not meeting anybody in Japan or Australia or India in their capitals. He's meeting in secondary cities. This American shadow diplomat gets assassinated, and our guy Scott Harvath, my protagonist, gets tasked by the White House with figuring out, A, was the Chinese behind it, and then B, working his way up the chain and taking out every single person responsible. Uh, but again, it's all wrapped up in the international intrigue and the espionage that really happens in uh, India on a daily basis. This was such fertile ground to do a, a thriller. It, it was just my cup runneth over the entire time. There is a recurring theme and I don't want to give too much away, but there are a number of incidents that occur in Rising Tiger involving so-called directed energy attacks. This is something that we have seen in the United States. We've seen U.S. diplomats targeted abroad in places, for example, like Cuba. We've heard the term Havana syndrome, and there's been some discussion of is it even real? Is it psychosomatic? Whenever I read about it, it's very disturbing and confusing, and I don't really know what the truth is. And this is one of those areas where when I read your books, Brad, I start wondering, okay, how much of this is real? How much of this is fiction? What can you tell us about these types of attacks and the way that these weapons are utilized by bad guys in Rising Tiger? Is that reality? Is that science fiction? Is that what might come one day? Or is is the future already here? What can you tell us on that front? So it was a combination of the two, because there were rumors that to mask their uh, retreat in the Himalayas that the Chinese used a directed energy weapon against the Indians. They thought they were going to be able to slaughter all these Indian troops. They were losing the battle, and allegedly it is, it is a big rumor. They brought one of these weapons to bear on the battlefield there. Now, what I thought was interesting is, yes, you've heard of Havana syndrome. It was uh, this combination of symptoms that was visited upon U.S. and Canadian personnel at the embassies down in Havana. Uh, it's also appeared in D.C. But what I found was really interesting is an American diplomat and her two dogs in Shanghai succumbed to this, and she was in terrible straits. She called her mother from the East Coast. I believe her mom was a Virginia resident to come help take care of her in Shanghai. And when the mother showed up, the mother was 
uh, fell victim to Havana syndrome as well. So I thought this idea of looking at directed energy weapons that supposedly the Chinese have been using might be an interesting complement to the book and an interesting subplot. And then also the first Secretary of Defense for India last year went down in an unexplained – this is real life – an unexplained helicopter crash where they don't know if all the avionics were fried or what happened. But it was really, really uh, mysterious to the Indian government why this helicopter went down. And I thought, oh, that might be another interesting thing to fold in if the Chinese were trying to upend India joining an American – or an Asian version of NATO. Might they also try to take out the Secretary of Defense? And it gave me a a neat way to rope in these directed uh, energy weapons as a subplot in Rising Tiger. Yeah, and this is what is so good but also creepy about Brad Thor novels is he takes real stuff and folds it in and maybe enhances a little bit but not necessarily. And you're not really sure where the reality ends and the fiction begins, which makes it for, you know, it makes it a great read but also makes you think and think beyond just enjoying a thriller at the beach. Like what's actually happening in the world? What type of threat does an emerging enormous China and their surveillance state pose to the rest of the world. And on that front, Brad, I don't know if you saw the story this week, but it was revealed, and this should not come as a surprise to anyone, because a lot of people were warning of specifically this, including the former U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, whom you thank in your acknowledgments in this book, but TikTok, and that being a Chinese company, and a lot of people worrying that it's a CCTV, espionage tool to mine a huge amount of data on massive numbers of people. Some countries like India have banned TikTok. Others obviously have not. But it was described this week or it was revealed this week that some of this data of U.S. users was being accessed in China in a way that had not been confirmed previously. Again, not surprising, but nevertheless relatively stark. Your thoughts on that? Well, so first of all, that's the reason why the Thor family doesn't have TikTok on our phones. And yes, TikTok was banned in India along with every other Chinese app after this attack in the Himalayas two years ago last week. It was one of uh, New Delhi's reprisals against Beijing. There are, in 2026, there will be 1 billion cell phone, smartphone users in India. And so India pulled the plug on Chinese apps. It was a huge blow to the Chinese tech community. And New Delhi basically gave Beijing the finger and said, you have been gathering our personal data and the biometric information on Indian citizens for years, and we're not going to have it anymore. Bravo. I'd like to see us do the same thing here. Yeah, I tend to agree. Now let's quickly step aside and continue our conversation with Brad Thor, best-selling author, right after this, his new book, Rising Tiger. I have one last question for Brad next. Fresh conservative talk, Kai Benson Show. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Brad Thor is with us. Just catching up with Scott Harvath, who has been your main protagonist in your main line of novels all the way back to Lions of Lucerne, which is book number one. I always like to say when I recommend Brad Thor books, I recommend starting with Lions of Lucerne, not because you will be lost reading any of them out of order. As Brad said, absolutely true. You can pick one up independently. It's like an episode of Law & Order. It's self-contained. It makes a few references back for people who know, and there's some winks and some Easter eggs here or there. But overall... You can read them completely out of order if you want to. I like to start with Lions of Lucerne. Maybe that's because I'm biased. That's what I did. But Scott Harvath was a young man in Lions of Lucerne. He's getting less young with each passing novel. Where is he in his life 
in Rising Tiger, and is there any thought in the back of Brad Thor's mind about when it might become unrealistic for Scott Harvath to keep putting his body through this insanity book after book? Well, there's no plan to uh, time to a desk yet, but he very much parallels uh, some guys that I know that are still in the intelligence community that are doing everything they can, performance-enhancing drugs. There's no rules against those. If we're out hunting bad guys and you're doing steroids or whatever it takes, you know, shaves a little bit off your mile, that's totally good stuff. So there's a lot of people that this is their life. This is their American dream. They're not going to be able to settle down with a wife, two kids, and the white picket fence. It's just not going to happen for them. They live for being out there doing some of the nation's most dangerous business. And I see a lot of these guys still kicking in doors, still shooting bad guys in the face. We need them out there. We need their wisdom. But you do get to a point where you say, are you better, Tom Brady, helping develop the next generation of players uh, rather than being on the field? But only Tom Brady can make that call. And I actually draw that parallel in Rising Tiger about Tom Brady. Only he can decide when it's time to step off the field. Well, and Scott Harvath has sort of done that false start once or twice where he's like, maybe I'm done. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. I'm back. It's just like Tom Brady as a matter of fact, and you mentioned these guys that you were referencing, you talk to this community a lot, right? This is not just you letting your imagination run wild. That's part of it, but you really speak and have close relationships with some of these special high-level apex predator operators, right, to try to maximize some of the realisticness of these books, yes? Absolutely. I think that's what makes my thrillers so exciting and so much fun is I take you right to the edge, right to the property line and let you peer over the hedges into this world. And it's really accurate. Uh, there's certain things that I can't reveal in the books and I don't. You know, my my sharpshooters, my people who are in that community get to look at the books before I put them out and they can say, ah, you know what, we didn't tell you that, but you figured it out on your own. That's got to come out of the book. And I pull it because I'm an American first. I'm a novelist second. Uh, and I want people to have a great ride, but I don't want to reveal stuff that shouldn't be out there in the big bad world. Brad Thor's latest book is Rising Tiger. I read the whole thing. I was just engrossed, and I recommend it. It's a lot of fun, as they all are. Rising Tiger is available everywhere July the 5th. Rush out and get it. And, Brad, we will all hold our breath and wait to see where on the bestseller list it lands, because it will. You have a very loyal audience. I'm a member of that loyal audience, and we'll be rooting for you when that first list comes out. July 5th is the big on-sale date. Again, congratulations and best of luck. Thank you, my friend. You bet. Brad Thor on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, the 2nd of June, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here each and every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, around the clock, on demand, for free on our podcast, which is really growing big time. We are grateful. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. One-stop shop there. Lots of ways to listen live. And again, if you can't listen live, the podcast is free right there. GuyBensonShow.com. At GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Here's the lineup today. Former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo joining us later this hour. Miranda Devine on the Durham investigation coming up in the next hour, as is Charles C.W. Cook on the Second Amendment and a history lesson there 
for progressives who are distorting the historical and constitutional record. I think that's important if we're going to have serious, accurate, honest conversations about guns. And then Larry Kudlow in our final hour. He'll get off the air on TV. Come join us on radio talking about the economy, inflation, the Biden plan, such as it exists, etc. But we begin with a story today that I find intriguing and odd. And I wrote about it today at townhall.com. And if you're intrigued like I am, you can go and read about it on the tip sheet. President Joe Biden has exhibited throughout his entire adult life a penchant. It's almost, I might say, pathological to lie or embellish or exaggerate details about his life and his biography. Now, most politicians fib and exaggerate. That's a fact of life. And I'm not talking here about policy or political lies. We address those all the time. For instance, Joe Biden lies about his tax plan and the implications of what he wants to do on tax hikes. We correct the record. He's not telling the truth. He lied about Afghanistan and the conditions under which we would or would not withdraw all American troops. Those are consequential falsehoods. There are also political lies. For example, NBC News this week had a story that we discussed at length on the show about the chaos and divisions inside the White House. And one minor detail was that Biden gets regularly, at least weekly, briefed on polling. And Biden had said publicly that he doesn't read the polls at all. He said, that's not a joke. Not a joke, folks. No, it's just a lie. Of course he reads the polls. He's actually obsessed over the polls if you read this NBC News story. Those are all, for better or for worse, I'm not defending them at all. We, you know, drill down on them here. Run-of-the-mill, common lies or shading of the truth or untruths or tall tales for political reasons that you see from various political actors on the regular. Republican, Democrat across the board. What I'm talking about here is different. It's particularly shameless. And I would say, above all else, it's really weird. It's really weird how Joe Biden over and over and over again just makes things up about things that he has done in his life, things that have happened to him in his life, things that are just not true. What sparked this whole thought, which catalyzed the piece that I've written at townhall.com, sort of the kickoff to this, was over the long weekend, the president gave the commencement address at the Naval Academy. And at the very beginning of his speech, he told a quick anecdote about his own life and his own connection to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Cut 29, here's the very short snippet. I was appointed to the Academy in 1965 by a senator who I was running against in 1972. And he went on to tell this story about how he didn't end up going to Annapolis, but if he had, he would have been deployed and he couldn't have run against this senator in 1972. He wouldn't have won because he's been in Washington 
most of it in the U.S. Senate for decades, as we all know. And some political reporters who were watching the speech said, gosh, that's a story we haven't heard before. And maybe they didn't hear it before because it's not true. It can't be true. At the very least, Biden misremembered or confused the dates. It could not have been 1965. The terminology of being appointed to the Naval Academy, people have disputed that, saying, no, that is absolutely not what happened here. It's not stolen valor, but it's sort of adjacent to that. It's in the neighborhood. He went on to the University of Delaware instead, and he told that story. But he did not get appointed to the Naval Academy in 1965. It just didn't happen. Now, that might seem like a very small thing. It's certainly not the most important thing happening in America right now, but it feeds into this pattern. These serial embellishments or untruths from this man. Here are two more examples of quite a few. Some people might lie on the topic of getting arrested by lying that they did not get arrested in order to get a job or what have you. Joe Biden, on multiple occasions, has lied that he did get arrested. When, in fact, he was not arrested. For example, he said several times that he was arrested with Nelson Mandela in apartheid South Africa. Here's an example, cut 30. This day, 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and entered into discussions about apartheid. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our U.N. ambassador on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. Now, this is the story that he told on the campaign multiple times, that he got arrested while in South Africa visiting Mandela because he was down for the cause, Joe Biden. So some fact checkers looked into it, and the Washington Post called the claim ridiculous and gave him four Pinocchios. And eventually he had to back off saying, well, what I meant was I got briefly separated. Separated is not the same word as arrested. Obviously, we all understand that. He used the word arrested for extra emphasis and power, even though it wasn't true. In Cut 39, he also bragged that he was arrested during the civil rights movement in the United States. Listen. Because I'm so damn old, I was there as well. (laughs) They think I'm kidding, man. (laughs) Seems like yesterday, the first time I got arrested. Anyway. And he told that story a couple times. Got arrested. During the civil rights era. Didn't happen. Four more Pinocchios. We're up to eight Pinocchios on these arrest stories from the Washington Post. Even PolitiFact, which is a Democrat-aligned fact checker, called that one false. Then the list goes on to pettier stuff. Biden talked about how much he enjoyed teaching when he was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. In fact, he was paid a million dollars for that position. He never taught a class. That one at least has some semblance of truth to it. Others, not so much. Biden said he was a truck driver professionally at one point in his life, cut 33. I used to drive a tractor trailer. Oh, uh, awesome. And so I know a little bit about driving big trucks. No, that's great. But um, anyway, it's, uh, I only did it for part of a summer. Oh, God. But I got my license into it. He did this job for part of a summer, got his license as a truck driver. Awesome, says the guy who's talking to. He's pushing 
an infrastructure package in this context. So he wants to say, like, he's around these blue-collar people. I was a truck driver. Oh, wow. There's no record that he was ever a truck driver. And asked for any specifics or details or proof, there has been none offered. PolitiFact, again, left-leaning PolitiFact, called that claim false. Here's another strange one. Again, weird. You can call it shameless. You can call it pathological. I've used those adjectives as well. More than anything, to me, it is weird. Biden was talking about Idaho and how he interviewed for his first job ever in Idaho, cut 34. I got a, I, my first job offer where I wanted, my wife, deceased wife and I wanted to move to Idaho because we think, not a joke, it's such a beautiful, beautiful state. And I interviewed for a job with Boise Cascade. He likes to say not a joke, which might be the tip off that whatever he's saying isn't true. Someone looked into this. They asked the company, which had to then put out a statement saying we have no record of President Biden and his application or of him having worked for the company. We checked the system internally, turned up nothing. On a more serious note, you might recall that in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in 2018, there was a horrible shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. A bigot went in to kill as many Jews as he could. Subsequently, President Biden was talking about the time that he remembered going to visit the Tree of Life Synagogue after that terrible event, cut 35. I remember spending time at, the, you know, uh, go, going to uh, the, uh, you know, the Tree of Life Synagogue, speaking with them. It just, it just is amazing these things are happening. I remember spending time going to the Tree of Life Synagogue. New York Post looked into it. The executive director of the synagogue said that Biden had not visited in the nearly three years since the anti-Semitic attack took place. So this story came out in 2021. They asked, are you sure? Was Biden ever here? Was he ever at this house of worship? And the executive director responded, quote, with a firm no. So there's an invented memory, or at least a story that he decided to tell. To, I guess, make things more emotional, connect more, the details being almost ancillary in terms of, like, the truthfulness of them. This one I find disconcerting. We know that Biden has grieved loved ones in his life. He has experienced traumatic loss, his son Bo, before that his first wife and his young daughter in an accident. There's no questioning that. That happened. That is real. He has drawn on that experience to comfort other people who were hurting. I think that's admirable. But for many years, Biden would tell the story about that accident with a villain, the truck driver who was involved. And he would say that the driver was drunk. That turned out to be absolutely false and incorrect. According to the police department, the police report, local officials, a judge weighed in saying, no, this was not a drunk driving situation. In fact, Biden's former wife accidentally 
drove into the path of the truck. It was a terrible accident. The guy was not drunk. There were no charges filed. But over and over again for years, Biden called the guy a drunk driver. And this man's family has been desperately asking him to stop. Stop tarnishing and smearing the legacy of our dad or husband or uncle, that sort of thing. But Biden said it over and over again for dramatic effect. Why do you have to embellish anything about something that sad already? Then there was, of course, the whole plagiarism scandal, which derailed Biden's first presidential run of three, 1988. He had plagiarized a British politician's speech, which then revealed that he had plagiarized a few other speeches while he was a politician. Then eventually he was forced to admit that he plagiarized pages worth of material when he was in law school. And the whole thing just sort of cascaded. He was very touchy about this. When people would bring it up, he angrily denied it until he couldn't anymore. And at one point, I don't know if you've ever seen this clip. It is wild. Someone asked him a question on the campaign trail about this and sort of suggested that maybe Joe Biden isn't that bright. And Biden bristled and got very, very defensive and went on this whole long rant about how smart he is and all the accolades academically that he had earned through the years, one after another. And it kind of sounds impressive. So first you'll hear Biden yelling at this guy about how smart he is. And then at the end of the clip, you will hear local and national news reports about the veracity of what Biden actually said in his boasting. Again, this clip, if you've never seen it, is absolutely amazing. Cut 37. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and, in fact, ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. Did he say a single thing that was true? I mean, he was rattling them off like he had them memorized, all these great things he had done, and it was just... Top to bottom, start to finish, false, made up, wrong, which only deepened his problem. Repeatedly, serially through the years he has done this. And all it did was make him a mainstay in the U.S. Senate and then vice president of the United States and then president of the United States campaigning on a platform of truth compared to the last guy. Say what you will about Joe Biden or his policies. He should have never been taken seriously on the honesty front for just some of the reasons that we have just recapitulated for you. It is taken together amazing. And as I say more than anything else, super, super weird. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you for listening. 
In my opening monologue, I was talking about all these examples of Biden lying or exaggerating or going way over the top with these fairy tales, tall tales about his life, his biography. The latest one was over the weekend at the Naval Academy. I just went back and tried to bring a bunch of them into one place and aggregate them at townhall.com today. And I went through a bunch of them with audio in the opening segment. I forgot this one. I'd forgotten about it completely. Biden at one point recently told a story while he was pushing the infrastructure bill that he once had his house burned down. That's a quote. And I know, quote, having had a house burned down with my wife in it, she got out safely, God willing, that having significant portion of it burn, I can tell you 10 minutes makes a hell of a difference. And he told a similar story back in 2013 that his house burned down. And thank God Jill was able to get out. The Associated Press actually reported on the incident in 2004. There was a lightning strike. It started a, quote, small fire that was contained to the kitchen. House didn't burn down. Again, this is just so odd. Now, if he'd only lied about serving in Vietnam, maybe that would have capped his career. He could only be a senator from Connecticut. Or if he lied about being a Native American, he'd be limited to a Senate seat in Massachusetts. But he's dreamed a lot bigger. And now he's president. It's the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Fox News alert. During the break, just some breaking news. I was saying in the previous segment that it's time, long past time in some ways, for some of these consequences to start to go into action and into motion against Russia, given what Vladimir Putin said and announced today, which is likely a precursor for an invasion. And during the commercial break, just those few minutes while we were gone, the White House has put out a statement that that's exactly what is now starting to happen. Meanwhile, President Biden, having spoken with President Zelensky of Ukraine, is now on the phone with the French leader, President Macron, and the Chancellor of Germany, Schultz, and that is playing out right now. And one can hope that as the measures, whether it's sanctions or other forms of consequence for Putin and Russia and the Kremlin's inner circle, as they are announced by the United States, those are echoed by the rest of the free world. This needs to be a unified front. Because Vladimir Putin made the choice to push things closer to war today with his extremely provocative speech and his new announcements. And there's no defending them. And we'll keep you posted on any additional developments. In the meantime, we have that crisis in Ukraine, which we're talking a lot about for good reason. There's the crisis, for example, on inflation that a lot of American consumers have been experiencing. It's painful, it's acute, and in some ways it's gotten worse. There's another crisis that we have promised on this show that we would not lose sight of, that we would not take our eye off of this ball because so many others in the media have. They almost never talk about it, which is the border crisis, Biden's border crisis. The last time, and I've mentioned this before, the last time the news media writ large covered the border crisis 
in a significant way was when they had the excuse, sort of the news hook that appealed to them of attacking our border patrol for a made up lie, the whipping slander, if you remember that. Led by the president of the United States himself, that was not true that we had Border Patrol agents whipping Haitian nationals and illegal immigrants down in Texas. Didn't happen. But Biden said it happened and promised an investigation. And now I guess the investigation hasn't gone the way he wanted it to. And the Washington Examiner reported a few days ago that now the administration is reportedly considering not releasing the results of that investigation at all because I think it would underscore the reality that the president and his whole team got way out over their skis and smeared a bunch of law enforcement officials in the United States. And the media got all spun up about it, if you'll recall. We were promised a swift probe and justice. Biden said something like, they're going to pay. Okay, whatever happened to that? We have Bill Malugin, our colleague at Fox, on this show a lot, reporting from the border. And I just want to underscore some of the stats here. And they are eye-popping stats before I get to a more personal story about how this issue affected my family in the last few days. You heard that right. I'll explain in just a moment. But based on U.S. official numbers, we are now well past 2 million encounters at the border under President Biden. More than 2 million He's barely been in office for a year, right? A year and change at this point. This figure represents a historic high with the total outnumbering the combined number of crossings reported over the past two years by more than half a million. That's from foxnews.com. Now, what's amazing is you will see some of the criticisms of this on social media, and the spin from the left is, well, all these encounters means that the system's actually working. Border Patrol is doing their job. They're capturing these people. They're apprehending them. Now, of course, a lot of leftists are just cheering on the illegal immigration. They support it. But those who are taking a different tact are trying to say, oh, this isn't open borders. This is closed borders. And all these encounters prove it. And that's maybe on a facile level, Appealing, And some people who don't know anything or are ignorant might say, oh, gosh, maybe that's true. You just scratch a tiny bit below the surface and you realize that it's total nonsense. Because during that same time, we're up to roughly, and this is estimated, roughly half a million gotaways. People who are detected by our technology or seen by our personnel, but we lack the resources to go get them, so they just melt into the country. Half a million at least of those estimated. That doesn't count people that are unknown gotaways, that weren't detected. That is a huge number. If you add up known and unknown gotaways and you sort of ballpark it over the last year plus, you're getting close to the entire population of Washington, D.C., which the left wants to make a state, I will remind you. So the whole gotaways phenomenon, they just don't want you to think about that at all when they try to pretend like, oh, this is proof that the system's working. The more encounters you have, by the way, and the more you're using your people to process them, the fewer people you actually have on the front lines 
trying to stop truly dangerous people who might be trying to sneak in. That's another element of all of this. And then there's the phenomenon that we talked about a little bit in the last couple of weeks, which is the shocking decrease, the collapse in deportations. The Biden administration has specifically laid out in memos that they are going to stop deporting a lot of people, as a matter of course, illegal immigrants who violate our sovereignty by coming here against the law and then commit and are convicted of additional crimes. The Biden administration is saying there are categories of those crimes that will not subject those convicted offenders to automatic deportation. And I had to read this sentence twice. This is based on Border Patrol data. Adam Shaw, who's our colleague at Fox News, he's a politics reporter. He amplified Bill Malugin's reporting on this. Listen to this. More migrants were released into the United States in January, meaning last month. More migrants were released into the United States last month than were deported by ICE in the entirety of fiscal year 2021. DHS reported, to put numbers to that shocking sentence, DHS reported about 63,000 migrants were released into the United States in January of 2022, 62,000, 63,000. ICE reports in all of fiscal year 2021, the number of deportations by ICE was just under 56,000. We knew that there were a lot of illegal immigrants simply being released into the United States, sort of processed and released. We're even flying them places. We're sending them on airplanes to cities of their choosing to go reunite with family or friends or what have you with the expectation that they're going to show up for court one day. And, of course, many of them do not. Based on the government's own numbers, that happened 63,000 times last month. Last year, they deported fewer illegal immigrants than that. All in. If that doesn't encapsulate the absolutely backwards approach of this administration to illegal immigration, they can say, we're not open borders, don't come here, that's not what we believe. Actions speak louder than words. Their words are bad enough. Their actions are even worse. Now, if you're a regular listener to The Guy Benson Show, you know that we talk about this issue somewhat regularly because of that pledge that I made to all of you. We're not going to lose sight of it. We're not going to just ignore it like so many others in the press do. And I say all of this as someone who generally is not a hardliner on the issue of immigration, right? I'm open to an idea of a DREAM Act, for example. But not until we get the problem under control, and the problem is the opposite of under control. Like, I want to be a welcoming, law-abiding society, law-respecting society. We should be compassionate. There are people who I think should be allowed to stay here and have some process to stay here. That might be different than citizenship. But to me, all of that is a wildly premature conversation at this point, given the debacle that is being inflicted on the country by the Biden administration and the choices that they're making.
And all of that is a backdrop to what happened in the last few days. And I don't want to get overly dramatic about this. I don't want to get overly emotional about this. But my in-laws, Adam's parents, were visiting California. They were on vacation. And I believe at this point it was on Friday. They were driving. And they were rear-ended in a violent accident. This crash was so severe that their airbags deployed. Someone smashed into the back of their car. Who was this someone? A drunk driver. Someone who was, you know, you've seen all the PSAs on TV. Buzz driving is drunk driving. Yes, smashed driving is also drunk driving. This person was apparently, there were witnesses who said, just swerving everywhere. This was an extremely intoxicated person behind the wheel of a car that crashed into the car that my in-laws are driving. He is apparently an illegal immigrant. No English, no papers, no insurance. The good news, thank God, is that my in-laws are going to be okay. They said that they had soreness in their back and their necks. The airbags probably helped. They're going to be okay. The other guy's car apparently was total, and I'm getting all of this through a few text messages and then through Adam as well. And, of course, it doesn't matter who's driving the car. If you've got a drunk driver who hits someone that you love, that is just outrageous. It's blood boiling. I tweeted about this yesterday that this happened, and I included two material facts in the tweet. Number one, that this was a drunk driver. Number two, that the drunk driver was also an an illegal immigrant. Someone who is not in this country legally. Someone who had no legal right to be in this country. And I would say unsurprisingly, I got pushback from generally left-leaning people on social media attacking me for having the temerity to mention that the person who crashed into my in-law's car hurting them was in this country illegally. Like, oh, that's an irrelevant piece of information. Like, I'm, what, the racist or the xenophobe for mentioning this fact? How dare you attack me for mentioning that fact? It is a relevant fact. I have gone out of my way on this show not to denigrate illegal immigrants, not to say that they're a bunch of criminals. The vast majority of them just want a better life. That doesn't mean they have the right to be here. That doesn't mean that we open our borders to them. We still need to control things. But I don't sit here railing against immigrants, certainly not legal ones, or even illegal ones in a personal way. Is there my concern that a disproportionately high number of the people who go out of their way to elude Border Patrol might be up to no good or could be dangerous people, part of gangs or cartels or what have you? Yes, And there is a public safety component to this, but I have not been a demagogue on this issue. And yet I'm treated like the bad guy, the bigot, for noting that my in-laws 
were hit by a drunk driver who should not have been in this country at all. He didn't have a right to be here. And if you feel like that should not compound my anger about this or affect my anger about this, screw you. It is a fact, and it's not acceptable. I'm not tarring a bunch of people with a broad brush. I'm saying what this individual did. This person shouldn't have been here at all because we have laws in this country that we should at least pretend that we're interested in enforcing. God forbid if things had gone differently or worse, I don't think I could contain my fury about this. This is relatively controlled anger right now for me because they're okay. But this is a failure. This is a combination of law-breaking and failure. And the law-breaking is on that guy. The failure is on that guy. But the failure is also on public officials who incentivize and in some ways encourage illegal immigration. Last point. In some of these memos that they've put out from DHS, from this administration, I talked earlier, just a few minutes ago, about classes of crimes that do not automatically make you eligible for immediate deportation, sort of like an auto-deport. If you're convicted of additional crimes in this country as an illegal immigrant already, they have whole categories saying, oh, not as a matter of course anymore. Let's give some leeway. You know what one of those crimes is? Drunk driving. Now, this guy hits someone and hurts some people. Maybe that makes it worse so he'll get deported. The fact that I'm not sure is absurd. So we've been talking about this issue for a reason. I think it matters when it comes to policy. And now here is this frightening, enraging, personal situation and experience that has impacted my family. So if they were hoping over at the White House that I would maybe lose interest in this story and this issue broadly, well, good luck with that now. I got to go. I'm late. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Boris Johnson, the prime minister over in the U.K., who's been in some hot water for, I guess, his staff having parties during COVID restrictions. He has announced a lifting of those COVID restrictions across England. The New York Times reporting that the British prime minister is shifting toward a strategy of living with COVID-19, while critics argue that the move is coming too soon, even as case numbers fall. Critics are going to argue that it's too soon forever. You need leaders to just do it. One of the arguments that I've seen is, how can he do this when Her Majesty the Queen has just confirmed that she has COVID? By the way, we wish the Queen the very best. She's 95, which is sort of obviously danger zone. Praying for a speedy and full recovery for her. But she contracted COVID during the restrictions. So what's the argument here? We can't get rid of the restrictions that didn't work in preventing this for her, so we have to keep them? That's pretty incoherent. 
Although, it's not surprising, the incoherence. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up, Peter Ducey next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. We are in Tallahassee, Florida, today and tomorrow, then on to Miami after that. Very happy to be down here in the Sunshine State. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. We also put significant interviews up on the website, and we have one of those coming your way this hour. GuyBensonShow.com, although you're going to want to stay tuned right now because in this happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. We welcome for the very first time onto The Guy Benson Show someone that we've talked about quite a lot because he takes slings and arrows from the left, from the news media, from the Democratic Party, that whole coalition, seemingly every hour of every day. And we've defended him when we think he's right, when he's being treated unfairly. But he is perfectly capable, of course, of defending himself which is how he has built the approval rating and the standing that he has here in Florida, now with a national profile as well. Earlier this afternoon, I went to the governor's mansion for a one-on-one sit-down at the governor's desk. We had a lot to discuss, and boy, did we. Here's my conversation with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. We are here at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, Florida. I am delighted to welcome to the show Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican here in the Sunshine State. And some big breaking news today, your administration is suing the Biden administration over these continued mask rules on airplanes, for example. Talk about the thought process behind this and Florida's standing in this lawsuit. Sure. Well, first, welcome to the governor's mansion. Good to have you you here. So, you know, this is a, a matter of principle. They, they extended into April for no good reason. You have Fauci out there saying restrictions could re- be reimposed. And so some people say, well, he may just let it go out in April, but I think they could definitely bring it back. So the issue is, is this an overstep of government authority or not? And so our attorney general's done a great job. You know, she filed the lawsuit today. And so we're standing behind that. I'm surprised that courts haven't, upheld, uh, haven't struck it down by now. But clearly at this point, I don't even think it has a rational basis uh, given where, where we are as a society. So um, I think we've been leading on pushing back against Biden's overreach on all fronts, you know, not just this, the vax mandates, the border, all those things. And I think that's what people want to see, because I think Biden is really out of control. He's clearly not in command uh, of, of the White House and um, and he's expanding government in ways that I think will be dangerous. So you won the governor's mansion in 2018. It was a blue wave year. You squeaked through at 0.4 percent that victory margin. And at the time, registered Democrats in this state outnumbered Republicans by hundreds of thousands. Almost 300,000. That has changed dramatically, and there was news today on that front. This is like a sea change, one might call it, in Florida. Tell us about this. Sure. So we were down almost 300,000 in 2018 when I got elected. Today, we can announce that Florida Republicans now outnumber Democrats by over 100,000 registrants. So you're looking at close to a 400,000 registration swing. And the thing is, is I thought we could catch them by my election at the end of this year in November. We caught them in November of 2021. And so then I'm like, man, maybe we'll be 50 to 100,000 up by the election. We're already on. So at this pace, we could be 200 to 250,000 registrants ahead. And I think here's, here's why it matters for elections in Florida. 
midterm elections for sure, but even presidential, registered Republicans turn out at higher rates than registered Democrats. And then a Republican like me, I'm going to get a higher percentage of registered Republicans than the Democrat will get of registered Democrats. You know, we still have legacy Democrats who are, who are pretty conservative. And so um, functionally, it used to be Democrats outnumbered us. We had a turnout advantage, and then you'd kind of fight in the middle. That was why Florida was really a swing state. Well, now we have a, we're building a big registration advantage and the turnout advantage, and then I think this well, and is you're gonna, leading among independents as well. Exactly, this is going to be a red year. So I think obviously I will, I think I'll win independents big because of the job we did of governor. But I think all Republicans are going to win independents because I think they're rebelling against Brandon, and I think that they're going to want to basically show their frustration and vote for Republicans. What counts as a blowout in this state? Six points? Oh, who knows? I mean, you know, look, I think it's Florida's a tough state. It's always a tough state to kind of get your fit because there's so many moving parts. And we've always been a transient state. But I think now being able to capture such a rapid change, and it is an ideological migration that is skewing very heavily to Republicans. Like we don't really know. So we don't really know what the electorate's going to look like. I, my guess would be whatever kind of the public polling is going into the election, you can add a couple points to the Republicans' total mind. And I think other Republicans, because I think it's going to be hard for them to capture uh, what all these new registrants mean in terms of the turnout and all the things that go into modeling an electorate. Because sometimes you hear Republicans and conservatives worry about people leaving Illinois and California, New York and New Jersey, moving to other places and then voting the same way and turning places like Arizona purple, Colorado blue. Sounds like the opposite effect is happening here. This is getting redder in Florida. I think so. And I think part of it is we've always had lower taxes. So we've always had migration from that. The Northeasterners would come, you know, a lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans. The Midwesterners are generally uh, pretty conservative. But then with COVID, you had people that were fleeing COVID lockdowns. They had had enough on that. And then you had the Floyd riots and the defund the police. And a lot of families were like, look, I need to live in a state that's a law and order state. So the number of people I run into from like Washington State or Minnesota who say one of the breaking points for them was the fact that crime was going through the roof. And here I am. I was like one of the only governors backing law enforcement even in the summer of 2020. So I think there's a number of factors. And then, quite frankly, the media has helped us with this because the corporate press will always try to paint Florida as like the worst place ever. The only people that works with are the, are the leftists who actually believe the corporate narratives. Nobody else in America believes it anymore, especially conservatives. So a conservative in, in, in Wisconsin is going to say, oh, well, hell, CNN's attacking the governor of Florida. He must be doing a good job. And then they are more interested in visiting and ultimately moving it's here. It's like in-kind contribution it's absolutely. from the mainstream media every day with you. Now, you mentioned Fauci a few minutes ago, and one of the mottos or catchphrases that you have here that conservatives like, don't Fauci my Florida. A lot of those same conservatives think, Please do Florida, my America. <laughs> is this state, is your leadership in this state a model, do you think, for other Republicans around the country at the state level and maybe nationally? Well, I, I certainly think we've been willing to lead with purpose and conviction without worrying about whether it was safe to lead or not. Like, I have not conducted a single poll since I've been governor. I just do what I think is right. Focus groups? Never, never, not once. Now, I'm going to have to start polling the horse race when I get into the, the election. But, like, but on governing decisions, you're not polling it? I have not, I've not done a single poll. So how do you make these decisions? Then? I make them based off the facts, the data, and my convictions. And my view is, like, you know, if I polled you and, like, 10 of your friends on an issue, that's a static analysis. That doesn't tell me that if I set a vision and I execute the vision, then where will you guys come out? So I can move like you people. moving – I'm moving people. I'm showing them that this is how a state should be governed. So I think what we've been willing to do is, you know, we do not let 
corporate media, trim our sales. We're willing to stand up against woke corporations, which, quite frankly, a lot of Republicans uh, have been more corporate Republicans that defer to some of these corporations. Look, I, I want a limited government. I want a free enterprise economy. But when these big corporations are using their economic power to try to impose leftist ideologies, like in my state, we fight back on that. Um, and then I think we've been strong at fighting back against Biden. So I think there's a lot of those things. It's also interesting. You know, we just had a cabinet meeting today, so we had a report about Florida's finances. You know, we have we have $18 billion in debt. We've reduced the debt uh, by probably 20, 25 percent since I've been governor. So out of $110, $105 billion budget annually, our debt is only – 18 billion. You contrast that with the federal government. You know, Biden just put out a 5.8 trillion dollar budget, but there's 30 trillion right. in debt. And so I think we've shown we have the lowest per capita tax burden in the country. Um, we have no state income tax, but uh, we meet all the needs. I just did a big increase of pay for teachers, the biggest in Florida history. We gave $1,000 bonuses to all cops and firefighters for the second year in a row. We're doing a lot for our water resources to help our fishermen, our boaters, and our Everglades. So we're meeting the challenges that we have because we're really creating a virtuous cycle. Good economic conditions attract more people. We expand the economic base, whereas these blue states, I think they create a vicious cycle. They tax and regulate, so they repel people to leave their state. The base shrinks, so they got to do it again mm -hmm. to try to square the circle, and you just can't have it. So states like Illinois and New York, they are in a, in a tailspin, and they're not probably going to be willing to change their policies, but they would have well, to change the policies. Also had their schools closed for more than a year in those yeah. places. You made a decision last school year to bring the schools back open. Was that the most consequential decision you've made as governor so far? I think ultimately it will be because when I did this, was like June of 2020, and the data was very clear, just to be honest. I mean, it wasn't a difficult decision right. in terms Actual of substance. Science? Yeah, if you looked at the science, if you looked at places in Europe that had had schools open, if you looked at the fact that kids were at such low risk of COVID and really weren't prime drivers of transmission, there was no basis to say kids should not be in school. So substantively, if you followed the data, that's where you would have come out. However, politically and with the media, I mean, they thought this was the worst thing ever. A lot of parents were scared because CNN is telling them, you know, little Johnny may end up dying of COVID if he goes to first grade. School. So we, we had a plan. We executed it. I got a diverse state. I've got a lot of liberal school districts. I mean, most of them are conservative, but I got some. We got all the school districts on board. We structured it in a way that incentivized them to have five days a week. We gave parents the right initially to say, look, if you're more comfortable with remote, you can do it. But that's the parent's choice. The school can't lock the kid out. And so having the kids in, letting them play sports, letting them do activities, letting them do all that, um, had we not done that, uh, the problems that would have developed, I think, would have been problems that we would be seeing by now. But there are problems that if you and I talk five years from now, we would be seeing those problems. So we were able to really stand for the people who didn't have much of a voice. Uh, and I think we I mean, there's a lot of decisions we've been vindicated on. But that one, I was opposed. This teachers union sued me. We beat them. All the Democrats were opposed. The media is opposed. No one will admit that they oppose me to this day. They will all act like they supported having the schools open. So that tells you when you're right. One of your critics is a fellow governor. I saw a recent interview with Gavin Newsom out in California, and he went out of his way in an interview to come after you. He said that you're a performance artist. He said, quote, I do not look for inspiration to that particular governor, not on the pandemic, not on other policy, including the absurdity that was his woke initiative and the laughability around stopping something that doesn't exist, critical race theory. That's his quote. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's attacking you. What's your response to that from Newsom? Well, first, I would say 
how many people are moving from his state fleeing to come to mine for freedom versus vice versa? And I guarantee you, we win in the net in migration. People are leaving California in numbers we've never seen because of his failed policies. And here's what I'd say about the pandemic. If you look at um, you know, the, the COVID mortality, people point out California has less per capita mortality than Florida, which is true. They're also the second youngest state. So if you adjust by age, we're one of the oldest states. We're very similar. However, this is where I think his leadership has been terrible. If you look at excess mortality, California's had a higher percentage of excess mortality since COVID started than Florida. So that includes COVID, but it's not limited. So what are those lockdown deaths? Those are lockdown deaths. Absolutely. Those are deaths that his policies have caused, driving people to despair, drug addiction, lack of opportunities. And so um, there's people vote with their feet. You know, you, you hear a lot of people like him. How many other governors have said the same thing he does? Then they end up down in Palm Beach or Miami the first chance they get. You know, you have these. The con- DGA, the Democratic Governors they Association, all come. So had the, their event here. So what I like to say is people posture politically and they do these talking points, but how they actually act really tells the story. And when people vote with their feet, yes, there's a lot of Californians who like what we're doing who are coming, but even the ones that posture against Florida typically find their way here. And so I think that uh, the proof's in the pudding when it comes to that. The slings and arrows from Democratic politicians, from the national media, from the White House. I mean, you have been called out from the podium by the president himself. My conclusion is they see you as a threat to their power. Are they right to see you as a threat nationally? Well, look, I mean, I think if you look at what we've done to fight back against uh, Brandon so far, you know, we succeed. I mean, the, 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 diff- the contrast between a doddering, uh, you know, quasi-senile president who has to have his press team clean up his remarks after every time he opens his mouth versus somebody like me who's out there. I'm very direct. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. I lead and I get things done. You know, they understand that people view Florida as really being the leader of our country in many respects. We're really leading the free world in many. I mean, I have people from Canada that will come here that will write into me, Australia, Europe, and they say we look to Florida as the new citadel of freedom. They're not looking to Joe Biden for that because they know that he's just not not capable of producing the type of leadership that they do. But I absolutely think from the time COVID hit, you know, I think the media wanted to they wanted to use it to defeat Trump in 2020, you know, but they've tried to use it um, against me in any way they can. And then now that we're on to other issues, uh, they're always trying to find a way to attack me and attack Florida. Um, and I do think it's because I'm able to expose them. I'm able to show people that the emperor has no clothes and they're not used to that. I mean, they're used to Republicans that will roll over for the left. And I just don't do that. I stand my ground. And we will pick up on that exact theme. When we come back, my exclusive one-on-one discussion with Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida at the governor's mansion continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From Tallahassee, Florida, it's The Guy Benson Show. We now continue with my conversation with Governor Ron DeSantis. So let's talk about something that you did yesterday in this state. You signed into law this parental rights and education bill. It was hugely controversial in the media. It got a lot of national attention. I have had so many people bombarding me about this because I'm gay, I'm conservative, and I'm not subtle about the fact that overall I support what you've been doing down here in Florida. So, of course, we're going to talk about this. Just so you know where I'm coming from, the audience knows already. I've written about it. I've talked about it. I actually read the bill, a novel concept, seven pages, pretty easy. I think that the moniker don't say gay is a misnomer. 
it is biased and lazy for the media to adopt it. It's an activist slogan that does not reflect what's actually in the law, number one. Number two, that K through three provision that you talk about all the time, I think it's unobjectionable. I think it's common sense, and the polls are bearing that out. People, parents, Americans, Floridians support it. I do as well. I have two concerns about the law, and I'm just curious to get your responses to them. Number one, when you get past the K through three verbiage, literally in that same sentence, it also bars classroom instruction on these types of issues, sexual identity, gender identity, that are, quote, not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate at other grade levels. That language strikes me as vague and subjective. Who gets to decide what is age appropriate later on? Like in your mind, when would it become appropriate? Middle school, high school? So it'll be, it'll, it'll be a combination between the State Board of Education and the local school boards. Um, and I think that you may see, uh, you know, some parts of the state, you know, come to a little bit different conclusions depending on, you know, the years on some of that stuff. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that the, the reason this became an issue because when this first became an issue, you know, I wasn't even aware of some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, but, but, but with this transgender and the gender identity, there is an, an effort to try to tell people, well, you know, you may not really be a boy. You may be a girl. And I think that's totally inappropriate in the school system. I mean, you know, um, we need to focus on the normal things. And so I think that's really the genesis of this. We had a lady yesterday who uh, talked about her experience. Now, her daughter was a little older. Her daughter was in middle school here in Leon County. And she was in school, and the school administrators took it upon themselves to, quote, transition her to a boy. They even gave her a boy's name. They never got the parent's consent, and they never got the parent's permission. So the curriculum issue, I think, is something that is important. Um, and you know, one, I showed the thing of the genderbred man they created where they're trying to say, oh, you know, not really a boy, not really a girl. Um, but the, and that's clearly designed for younger kids. Very younger kids. But I think that the, 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 the issue that I think is, is, a, is what role does the parent have? I mean, if a school is doing something as drastic as trying to change somebody's view of their own gender, does the parent not have a right to know that that's going on in school? Right, it's, and, I mean, it's a fair question and it's a fair point. We're up on a break, but that exchange wasn't over. We'll play the rest of it on the other side of this break, plus much more to get to, and we will do so next with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Tallahassee, Florida, where earlier today I spoke with Governor Ron DeSantis at length in his office. When we left off, he and I were chatting about the controversial parental rights and education bill that he signed into law just yesterday. Our back and forth was substantive, it was respectful, and it wasn't done. Here's the rest of it before we move on to a variety of additional topics as well. Listen. The second concern that I had about it is, because I read these paragraphs in the law several times trying to make heads or tails of it. I talked to a couple lawyers, conservative and liberal, and they said, depending on these could maybe be decided by lawsuits, but depending on how you read and apply some of this stuff, could it be interpreted as a requirement for schools? Let's say a high school student is struggling with coming out, and he decides to confide in a trusted teacher, a trusted counselor, let's say, say, hey, I'm struggling, I'm not sure what to make of this. I don't want to tell my parents yet. Would the school then have to disclose that confidential conversation to a family 
Is that a legitimate concern under this law? Because having gone through the process myself, it's, it's hard, right? And having those discussions in confidence with someone that you can trust without it necessarily being required to go somewhere is vital for young LGBT people. And my concern is if they feel like this law would require, Florida would require schools to, based on the mental well-being or the emotional well-being, which is how it's written in the law, it's kind of vague, if they're going to be required to tell families, those conversations might get bottled up. They may not happen, and that could be harmful. I'm just curious your perspective right. on so, that. So, uh, for, so for one, the um, before you get to that point, uh, classroom instruction, sometimes people say, like, can you even say something in class? That's not what it is. It's what's the curriculum on that part. Instruction. Second, yeah, yeah. Second part of that is it needs to be some type of service that's provided to, in terms of a medical uh, service. And so, you know, when you're dealing with things like in California, you know, they had a girl who the school was administering hormones to, and she was depressed and they should have treated the depression. They were trying to give her hormones. So she ended up committing suicide. The wife is, is or the, the mother's now suing. So I think it's if they're doing something that is just like if you took your kid to a doctor. You so know, it's treatment, not a conversation. Right, exactly. Okay, I, I, think, I, a, I think there needs to be some service that's rendered in terms of a medical service that that's a would, very important where, where a parent would have clearly the right to be informed and to, to object. And just think about it. I mean, bef before all this, like people have conversations all the time. I mean, that's never really been the issue that's triggered this. I think the issue that's triggered this is you have kids that are going in and they're now being changed in terms of their their gender identity. They're they're being told, and it's it's odd because the so people so just to clarify, if, if a high school student came to his teacher that he really trusts, had him for several years, and said, "Hey, I'm having this issue. I might be gay. I'm not really sure." It is not your position that under this law that conversation would need not to be. Not unless they're getting a medical service. Okay. Now, you mentioned woke corporations a short while back. Let's talk about Disney because it's a huge employer in this state. People associate Disney with Florida for all the obvious reasons. I think I made my pilgrimage in fifth grade down to Orlando. I saw the statement that they put out yesterday, ripping the bill, ripping you indirectly for signing into law, saying that they're going to be uh, fighting to take it off the books moving forward. Did you have conversations with the higher-ups at Disney about this on the substance, and did they communicate to you whether they, let's say, oppose that K-3 through component? Because this is a company that caters to overwhelmingly parents and young children. Are they against the K-3 through thing that the majority of the American people support? So, so here's, I think, why the statement was totally outrageous. I mean, for two reasons. One, they said it should have never been passed in the first place. I talked to our Speaker of the House after that statement came out. He said they never contacted him while they were working, while, they, while I was moving through the House of Representatives in Florida. They didn't say anything about it. I mean, they could have called them and said that they had problems with it. They didn't do it. And so to say it should have never been law in the first place, they were not even engaged at those critical processes. And so they're responding to, I would say, left-wing activists and their view of it rather than the actual substance of it. Secondly, for them to say that they're going to work to repeal substantive rights of parents, because it's one thing if you're taking a political position about, you know, don't say gay, you know, you can't say the word. We know that's not in the bill, but they would, even they would, they would uh, be targeting provisions that provide parents substantive protections. And so I think they overstepped their bounds with that statement. They do not run this state. I'm not going to let our state be hijacked by a bunch of California corporate executives. And the fact of the matter is, I think they think that they, whatever they want in Florida, they get that may have been true in the past. That is not true now. 
um, and we're going to govern the state based on the best interests of the people of Florida, not what any corporation, uh, but particularly that corporation, is demanding. Got to ask you this, too. You must be probably prodded and prompted every day by someone asking about your ambitions beyond 2022. And I know that the goal of you and your campaign right now is to win a big reelection in Florida. You seem to be on track to do that. I'm not going to ask you, look, if you want to announce you're running for president, (laughs) by all means, do it right here, right now. I'm not going to ask you that question directly. I'm going to ask you this instead. When you hear that buzz directly or indirectly, how does that play into your thinking? Do you just kind of like put it in a box and set it aside till next year or something? Is it something that, you know, sometimes you, you daydream about? What's your thought process? Because no one ever asked me to run for president, so I don't know how I would think about it. But if people were asking me all the time, I don't know how I would manage that internally. I'm just curious how you do. Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is, um, you know, people have this merchandise with like 24. It's not my merchandise. Just so you know, that's You're not totally organic. Okay. They're doing it. <laughs> people will come up to me with this on and they will talk about 2024. The number one response I have to them in Florida is, you know, I'm running in 2022, right? And honestly, some of them don't. Um, and so we're going to make sure we educate everyone, you know, that we've got a really important election, you know, in 2022. But here's the thing. I've never been to Iowa in my life. I've never been to New Hampshire. I think I may have been there in my 20s. I'm just doing my job. And so I'm not doing anything differently uh, than I would do, whether people were buzzing about me or not. Um, I'm trying to do the best I can for the people I represent. I'm fulfilling my campaign promises, and I'm willing to make tough decisions and lead. And so that has caused people uh, to recognize me and view me uh, as a leader. But it's not because I'm out there uh, parading around or doing anything of that. So, so I appreciate when people look. I mean, I'll get, I get letters into my office um, every day from people around the country, you know, just saying, you know, we wish – the country could be more like Florida. We'd love to be able, you know, to, to, to see you run sometimes. At the same time, you know, I've got a wife that, that's, that's uh, you know, successfully battling breast cancer. I've got a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and I got a, the, the best state in the country right now to do. So I have my hands full. So I spend really zero time thinking about it except when people come up to me. And they're all very well-intentioned. I mean, they all really, you know, mean well. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's really neither here nor there for me. Last political question before a quick lightning round on non-political stuff. You have a constituent in Florida. He lives, I believe, in Palm Beach. Uh, people have heard of him. He was the president for a while there for four years. He's been hinting very heavily that he wants to run again. If he were to run again, should he be a heavy front runner for the Republicans by virtue of his previous position, or should it be a wide open field? Well, look, I, I, I saw some news that he made a hole-in-one the other day at yes. his course, so I just want to congratulate him. Yeah, I've been able he was to play, very excited about I've it. I've been able to play golf with him over the years, and, you know, he's got a very good game, and, and he's a good player. And so, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, you know we'll, we'll, we'll see kind of how, how, how all the dust settles on this. What I tell people, you know, with me in Florida is, um, you know, I plan on being the nominee. Our, our filing hasn't happened yet. And I think I've earned it. But you know what? I mean, if someone wants to run against me, they can. I mean, I have to earn it every step of the way. I've got in to the earn, primary here. I've got to earn it. And then I've got to earn the general election. That's just the reality. Although the Republican Party of Florida did in- officially endorse me. I don't know what that means, but um, <laughs> I think someone could still run, but hopefully they won't run. So um, but um, sounds but, like one step at a time is the answer. Here. Yeah, I think so. All right. Rapid fire stuff. A lot of Floridians in a certain area of your state were probably pretty thrilled and shocked when. Tom Brady 
unannounced, right? He's like, never mind, I'm coming back. You a Brady guy? You excited to have him back with the Bucks? 100%. So I, I grew up in that area, and I was a fan when they had the orange uniforms and when they used to have losing records year after year. You know, when Tony Dungy came on, he built a championship team. John Gruden took him over the hump, and they won the Super Bowl. But it's been rough sledding uh, throughout last decade until Tom came, and that was a huge thing. And I think – I think you know, he won the Super Bowl the first year, which is incredible. And if you look back at last year, I think he viewed it as probably his last year. But think about it. Had they beat the Rams, they would have probably beat the 49ers and the Bengals. I really believe that. I think they would have won two, back-to-back. And they were banged up. And yet he had one of the best years, not only of his career, but of really any and quarterback. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And so I think it was kind of the natural end of the career. But then I think he started thinking, you know, we should have won the Super Bowl. We can do it. If we get healthy, we add some stuff. So I was thrilled when it happened. I was sad when, when um, they, they lost. I was sad when he retired. Uh, but, you know, he, he's the best uh, football player of all time. And he's the best, probably the best team sport player of all times. I never thought I would see someone better than Michael Jordan. But if you think about it, with what Brady's been able to do by winning all those Super Bowls and to perform that way at that age, and, and football's tough. I mean, like, this is a tough sport. He's really head and shoulders above everybody. People often see you as kind of this political gladiator. You're out there doing stuff. You're out there taking like 60 minutes to the cleaners. And, you know, every day it's sort of relentless. What do you do to unwind that people might not know about? Chase my kids around. So I've got a five-year-old daughter, a four-year-old son, a two-year-old daughter. My two oldest, they love sports. My son loves golf and baseball. They love to swim. And so if I'm home on the weekend, I'm not really resting. I'm not really getting any rest. But it's like we're doing things, and it's probably been – you can look at your life before you were a parent, after a parent. There's a clear divide. And so, you know, we're very fortunate. We're the youngest family that's been in this governor's mansion since the 1800s. And I'm, I think I'm still the youngest governor in the country right now, but we haven't had young kids like this to have a, a big young family here. So it's interesting. People see me out there doing this. And then if they were only here, seeing me like chase them around there and doing all this stuff. But that's There's what like we do. Baseball gear out front. That's that right. I saw. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we set them right up in front of the governor's mansion. They'll hit off the tee and then we'll pick up the balls and then we'll do that. And so, so it's a lot of fun. You can pick one or both of these questions. What is the best book you've read in the last year? And what is a guilty pleasure TV show that you like to binge? You know, it's interesting. I mean, um, I started watching Yellowstone uh, over, the, um, over the Christmas holiday. And I think, I, mean, I think it's a good show. Part of it, I mean, Montana is beautiful. I'm just thinking, like, my wife's watching that. She's like, oh, man, we need to go to Montana. So that's fun um, for that. But, um, you know, the, what I try to do in terms of reading books is, you know, I try to just go back and read some of the things that are, that are really epic in history. I mean, I know there's new books that come out. And I read, I read Molly Hemingway did a good job on the election. And there's some other good ones I've read. Um, but, you know, you can pick up something like The Art of War. You can read that in one sitting. I mean, it's a pretty small thing. You know, you can read some of these things that, that have really – and there's a lot of wisdom in there. And so I go back, and, and I will do that. And, um, you know, I'm, I read – I read – I'll read some Federalist essays. I'll do things like that because I think it gets your mind going in a very sharp way. And, um, and so – You really are a constitutionalist nerd, aren't you? He's like, I just want to kick back and read the Federalist Papers. Well, it's, it's timely, and I think if you look at how they uh, uh, dealt with some of these issues, you find out – Human nature has not changed, okay? These are perennial issues about self-government, about liberty, and as we see these different storms in our time, uh, the underlying principles uh, that they articulated are just as applicable 
today uh, as they were then. Yes, the, the, the window dressing looks a little bit different because society's changed, uh, but, but those insights are very strong. Last, certainly not least, you mentioned her earlier, the First Lady, a scare with breast cancer, some really exciting news in the last few weeks. How is she? How has this been for your family? So she's officially cancer-free. Uh, now, she's still got to go through some of the radiation and stuff, but that's much easier than the chemotherapy was. And so she's doing really well. She's responding really well. And But I think what it just shows for all the women out there, you know, when this, when you get that diagnosis, it's very, very scary because, you know, your life, you know, theoretically is hanging in the balance. But I can tell you this, you will, you have a great chance to beat this. Hang in there. Fight the fight. They do great things nowadays in terms of the medical, and I think she's an example of that, um, that, that you can get through this. And so I'm really proud of how she's handled it. It is not easy dealing with in any time. But to have three little kids and then be in the public eye like she is, um, you know, it, it, really was, um, uh, it really was a difficult uh, time. But, but she's handled it well, and uh, she will be back full strength very, very soon. So stay tuned. Governor, thanks for inviting me into your state and into your home. This was really cool. Looking forward to chatting again. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back with an abbreviated home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. We are in Florida, the capital city here in this state, Tallahassee. We just wrapped up that lengthy and wide-ranging interview with the governor here, Ron DeSantis, a Republican, and we just sat at his desk for more than half an hour, and I was very pleased to bring you really an array of questions and answers from someone that we've talked about so much here on the show, finally got a chance to spend some time with him, and I hope that you found that interview elucidating, illuminating, informative, and maybe entertaining at times. I really enjoyed it, and if you missed any of it, you can go get it on the free podcast. The entire show, every day, on demand, totally free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we don't have a ton of time here at the end of the show because we went so long with the governor, who is very generous with his time today. But I do want to bring in Curious Christine here in the home stretch because she has been dying to ask all sorts of questions about today and this meeting so christine what are you most curious about now that you've heard the interview um did you give him my my new twitter handle you know it slipped my mind at cookies jar 1988 i probably should maybe i should like write a little note and have left it on his desk and he could immediately follow you (laughs) i have to say guy that interview was unbelievable you did and you know me, I'm not one to often give many, many compliments, but you did such an amazing job, and he is such an impressive governor, and you could tell he means business. Now, were you nervous uh, when he was walking in? Did you did you feel pressure, or did you just think, okay, I mean, I'm Guy Benson. Here I go. Um, I Definitely a little bit of nervous energy. I'd done my preparation. I thought a lot about the interview on the plane and the flight down here yesterday. And yeah, it's, I mean, the fact that the governor's invited you to his house to chat for 30 minutes about basically anything you want to, it's going to be on national radio. I wanted to do a good job. As I've mentioned now a few times, we talk about him, his policies, his controversies, his enemies a lot on this show. 
We've never had him on. I've only met him once before very briefly. This was obviously a much longer opportunity to sit with him. And actually tonight I'll be at a dinner off the record with him and a number of other people from the media, right-leaning folks. So we can maybe touch on that tomorrow, although the substance of the conversation tonight will be off the record as opposed to what we just all heard, which was on the record with Governor DeSantis. Not too nervous. He did walk in and shake my hand, and he looked around. He's like, are you just by yourself, like a one-man band in your equipment? I said, yeah, it's just me. And he was expecting a producer. Had to explain, yeah, she's in New York. It's probably for the best. That's another thing. I mean, don't you think it would have it would have been great if I was there just to get to – you think he would have chilled with me for a little bit, hung out? Talk, I'm not sure he does shop. a lot of chilling, period. Like, he is scheduled chock-a-block, and he had an event right before our interview. There was a press conference. He had people waiting for him when he left. He's got this dinner tonight, and I'd bet a few other things in between. He is no nonsense. It is just go, go, go with Governor DeSantis here in Florida. We got a little bit of a taste of that here on the program today. Back tomorrow from Tallahassee. No DeSantis on the show tomorrow, but we'll have a great one as usual. Same time, same place. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you then. It is The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.